Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Numbers 5 and Luke 19 and can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. Numbers 5, verses 5 through 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And he, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Please bow your heads with me as we begin. Jesus, we are so grateful that we have your word to speak as the very voice of God into our lives. And so we're now humbling ourselves before you and we're asking for you to speak because we're listening. We want to receive from you and not just as words coming from a human mouth, but words that come from the very mouth and the heart of God, your written word. And so please help us now in this time. Send your spirit and do your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to stroll down the street out from this building down to the Shaw neighborhood not far away, you would find there on 9th and Q Street a, an old brick row house that once belonged to Dr. Carter Woodson, served as his home and office. Dr. Woodson, who has been called the father of black history. Woodson taught at M Street High School and Armstrong High School here in the district, together also with a post teaching at Howard University. So shout out to some of our Howard students here today where he also served as dean of the college. Dr. Woodson was also an author and historian, and he was best known, is best known, as the founder of Negro History Week, which later became known as Black History Month. Dr. Woodson was concerned for the erasure of black history, and not only among Americans in general, but also among African Americans, and not only among people, citizens of this country, but also for Christians in this country. 
And so he invested much of his life to what he described as a black mass education movement. He once wrote, said, we are going back to that beautiful history, and it is going to inspire us to greater achievements. Remembering the life and the words of Dr. Woodson is an important reminder as we begin this observance of Black History Month that our primary focus should be on the beauty of that history, the beauty of the history of yours, of our African-American brothers and sisters, of ours collectively as we remember the all-too-forgotten history of the black experience. These stories of resilience, of achievement in the face of incredible odds, these stories of the grace and the image of God. That must be our focus and that must be our priority, the beautiful story. But here in the pulpit in the next two weeks, these first two weeks of Black History Month, I'll be calling our attention to the backdrop and the context of that beautiful history, namely its brokenness and its blight because of racist wounds, injustice, and plunder. And so today and next week, I'll be teaching on what is known as racial reparations from a biblical and Christian perspective. Reparations is a word that simply means repair if we pay attention to its Latin roots. It refers to the repairing of broken things. Reparations involves repairing what was ripped in our social fabric and in our relationships. But of course, we acknowledge from the outset that even the mere mention of that word often stirs up a lot of different emotions, even maybe objections for some of you. And we want to be a community that's sympathetic to that and understanding of where those immediate reactions and responses come from. So let me start by making two points of clarification in what we are and aren't going to be talking about. I want to make clear that I, in these times, will not be teaching that the Bible commands that all Christians must support federal government reparations, as if that subscription to, foreign, uh, to national domestic policy is a moral requirement of all Christians. Because as with all matters of public policy, we must be slow to say that all Christians must support this or that piece of policy or legislation. Because policy, of course, is always a bundle of different moral and pragmatic issues and priorities. So as we're going to see, the Bible actually has a lot to say about this topic things that might even have some practical implications, things that might even lead you to a certain view or conviction about public policy, but our emphasis will be on moral principles and biblical truths. We must be very careful in this time not to unnecessarily bind people's 
consciences. And secondly, I also want to clarify that this teaching on biblical reparations is not in any way a personal attack on our white brothers and sisters. People often duck out of this conversation because they assume that it is, and I think we must say it's in a sense understandable because all too often the conversation is weaponized in such a way that does feel like a personal individual attack. Now it must be said that if we're taking an honest look at history, we must be a community that honestly recognizes that how much racism in the name of whiteness has actually been used towards the subjugation of blackness and of black people. We must be honest about that. But our time will be focused primarily on our collective responsibility, especially for those of us who bear the name of Christ. So what's the thesis of this time? What's mainly the argument that I think we find argued in the pages of Scripture with respect to this topic of reparations? Here's the thesis in three basic components, three different parts. First of all, the argument here is that African Americans have been subject to mass robbery by racism over the last 400 years. That if we take an honest and truthful look at this history, what we find is the theft of bodies, beginning with kidnapping from people's homelands, even the rape of enslaved women, of course, the sordid story of lynchings in the late 19th, carrying over into the early 20th century, the violent torture and hanging of African Americans by angry mobs, often under false accusation. We see the story of the theft of dignity, the theft of dignity, where many people have been subject to a cultural norm that has depicted African Americans, black people, as subhuman, as naturally morally impaired, as even inherently criminal, treated as less than, and not only in broader society, but even in the American church, tragically so. It's a story that's marked by the theft of family, where from the very beginning of these sordid stories, we encounter the ways in which people were ripped from their families, husbands from wives and daughters from mothers. We see the story of the theft of education, where the enslaved very often were barred and banned from learning how to read and write simply because their masters wanted to control the independence of their mind and their will. And even 90 years after emancipation, where education was so often publicly denied or where young children were forced into schools that were unconscionably of lesser quality. It's a story of the theft of wealth, where so many had been forced into uncompensated labor during enslavement, but even in widespread fashion in the generations which followed, 
They were also banished from the instruments that in the American economy often guaranteed the best way of passing on inherited wealth, and that was through land ownership and home ownership. Through the tragedies and the sins of redlining, housing covenants on a racial basis. It's a story of the theft of community where so often we see the continuing legacy of the sequestration of African-Americans into certain parts of American cities and towns, such that even today there's nearly no racial demographic profile of almost any part in America that does not exist presently because of racist policy and norms. And where we see, of course, the story of the theft of story itself, not only causing so much widespread rootlessness of identity in so many people, wonderfully and valiantly being reclaimed, but a theft of story that has involved lies being told about the dignity of image bearers, the truth of who they are, these beautiful bearers of God's image. The first part of the Bible's argument is that there is mass and evil theft perpetuated in human community, and there has been in this one. The second part of the thesis is simply this, that the Bible is very clear about this basic principle. If you steal something, you have to give it back. And then thirdly, those who know the love of God and the gospel should understand and embrace this ethic better than anyone else in the world. Zacchaeus understood this. He had read his Bible, apparently, or at least he was under the training and tutelage of those who had. As we encounter from the very start of the story, Zacchaeus was a, a tax collector in Jericho. We're told in verse 2 that he was a chief tax collector, which means he was better than average. He was really good at doing what he did. And what he did under the Roman tax system was simply this. Tax collectors were people that would prepay the taxes that were owed to the Roman Empire. And then the empire would then farm out or contract this role of tax paying to the lowest bidder then they would allow the tax collectors then to overcharge the citizens, the people around them, in order to collect not only what was actually owed to the state, but a little bit more for themselves in order to make a profit. Booths were scattered about towns and cities like customs checkpoints at the airports, except they were kind of everywhere. And the tax collectors would often not only accost people, demanding payment immediately, but also confiscate items, often unjustly, and often even doing so with violence. Tax collectors in that day were characterized by dishonesty, greed, extortion, and they were a part of what one historian described as a system of institutionalized robbery. That's why in verse 8, when Zacchaeus later on is moved to repentance, he talks about the ways in which he has cheated or defrauded people. 
The same word there that's often translated extorted or stolen from. We're told in verse 2 that Zacchaeus was actually wealthy. Guess how he got his wealth? See, here's one thing we kind of have to help ourselves out with as we read this story. The children's storybooks that depict this beloved character often describe and portray him as sort of bumbling. I think it's because he was short. In fact, he was short, but he was also a terrible and ruthless guy. We read Zacchaeus like he was Joe Pesci's character in Home Alone, He was actually more like Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas. It seems like, as we encounter Zacchaeus, that something had been stirring in this terrible, evil man's heart. He had heard about Jesus, it seems, and he was really eager to see him. Maybe that describes some of you, eager to see Jesus. Jesus stopped right in front of the tree where Zacchaeus had climbed up. So eager was he to see the passing Jesus. Jesus stopped because grace stops. Love looks you in the eye. And Jesus calls him by name, Zacchaeus, because that's what love does. It picks you out of the crowd. Love knows you. And loves you, even the worst of you. And then Jesus scandalously invites Zacchaeus. No, he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Jesus treated the tax collector with a shocking kind of kindness and even dignity that almost immediately transformed Zacchaeus' heart. Zacchaeus, the the thief, suddenly became Zacchaeus, the welcomer, and Zacchaeus, the beloved. And so in verse 8, we're told that he he stood up almost as if to, to make a vow, to take an oath. And he says, look, Lord, here and now I have, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. It's a supernatural work of grace that was going on in Zacchaeus' heart, and what he's describing is what the Bible calls restitution, Uh, returning to the original owner whatever you had stolen from them. This law of restitution is actually established in a few parts of the Old Testament law, several places, but we find one example, one of the most important examples here in the passage that we have printed, Numbers chapter 5. You have different steps in this chapter laid out for God's people, for those who come under conviction for their sins of stealing. We're told there in verse 7 that that they must confess the sin that they have committed. So yes, you must bring your guilt before God and even before the person that you've wronged and you must verbally confess it, acknowledge it. You must repent. But it's also clear, is it enough just to acknowledge the wrong? Is it enough just to say sorry for having stolen? The answer is no. 
You notice they are called to, they must return or make restitution, full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the person they have wronged. They must give it back. And this moral responsibility has the sort of simplicity that you and I would recognize easily even a small child. If I took your car from you out of a moment of moral weakness, and then I came under conviction that it was wrong to steal your car, you and I have an honest conversation. I say, I'm deeply, oh, ah, I should not have, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. And you and your kindness say, well, I love you. I forgive you, you thief, but I forgive you. And then I say, well, thank you so much for your mercy. Um, but can I keep the car? (laughs) Not only would you say, no, it's mine, you would also begin to rightly question whether I truly repented. And so the passage says, we must make full restitution as a required step in order to be atoned of our sin. A ram is brought before the Lord as sacrifice for your sin of stealing. Let us be clear, your act of giving back what you had taken is not itself atonement for your stealing. The ram is the substitute for the punishment you ought to bear for your sin before God. Restitution does not atone. Restitution does not earn your forgiveness, but forgiveness is proven to be something that should be given to you by God because your restitution corroborates that your repentance is real. The sacrifice offering atones for our sin. Restitution is mandatory, even if it is not before God meritorious. And then in verse 8, we're told that if the person that you stole from died, well, whoop-de-doo, I get to keep the car then. No. The person you stole from dies, you give it to their relatives and their descendants. And if you can't locate them, We're told in verse 8, then your restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest. But one thing is clear, it's not yours. So you can't keep it. And so someone might say, well, goodness, if restitution is such a big part of biblical ethics, if it's such a big, significant part of the healing of ruptured relationships, well, why don't we find it more in the Bible? And the answer is actually we do. It's all over the place in every single genre of the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few for the sake of time, just a few examples. In the well-known story of David after he commits adultery, when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, Nathan tells a little parable, a story, just to kind of backdoor David to show him the wrong that he had done in stealing a man's wife And so he uses a little story about a man stealing another man's sheep. 
in response to this, yes, fictional judicial case that was presented by Nathan, David renders judgment in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that this wealthy lamb stealer shall restore the lamb fourfold. You got to give it back. In Job chapter 20, there's some conversation about the nature of evil and, and wickedness and at one point about theft. And it's said there that the wicked man who oppresses the poor and seizes houses he did not build on a future day of reckoning must with his own hands give back his wealth. The prophet Ezekiel spoke in the same way in chapter 33, verse 15, where he identifies the return of stolen goods as a true expression of a wicked person's repentance and, in fact, as a condition of forgiveness in life. He writes, if the wicked gives back what he has taken by robbery, then he shall surely live. Again and again, and I really can give you many more examples in the Old Testament, examples of both the principle and the practice and application of restitution, which, of course, let us not forget, falls under the banner of the call to love your neighbor. Because that's simply what this is. Restitution is a call to love. And you say, well, this is a little bit interesting because this seems so important according to what you're saying, but how come I haven't heard about this very much? We don't hear about restitution if it's such an important part of biblical ethics and the healing of ruptured relationships. Well, why are we not talking about this all the time? Hmm? Because it's true. It's not talked about. It's a lost ethic of Scripture. It's an all-too-quickly-dismissed truth of Scripture. It's a practice of love that has fallen out of practice, at least in the modern age, because, dear friends, if you go back in church history and read what has been written about how one obeys the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. When you hear sermons and theologies written about what it is that we ought to as Christians do in light of the gospel with the problem of theft, what you find again and again and again, if you go back as far as the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, is testimony after testimony about the central importance of the practice of restitution. We hear this from Thomas Aquinas from John Calvin, from the Anglican Bishop Ezekiel Hopkins, the theologian James Durham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, John Tillotson, all of them together and so many more talk about how restitution is an enduring part, even in the new covenant and to the present day for Christians, an enduring part of our obedience to the eighth commandment. It's required. It's something that you must do with everything in your power if you are guilty of the sin of theft. And they also say a couple of interesting things, drawing from passages like Numbers 5 before us, that not only are we obligated to give restitution to those whom we may have robbed directly, but as we're told in Numbers chapter 5, verse 8, we're also obligated then to give restitution to 
their descendants. Ezekiel Hopkins says this restitution is to be made to whom it is to be supposed that what thou hast wrongfully detained would have descended and been left by them. So you give your restitution to the one that would have eventually inherited that ill-gotten good. Or James Durham says this, if restitution wasn't ever fulfilled by the perpetrator, it still remains the responsibility of his descendants. The Bible obligeth even children that have somewhat transmitted to them from their parents that which they have unjustly obtained, and they're obligated to restore it. In other words, restitution is required even of stolen things that were passed on to you. You may not be personally responsible for the original act of theft a long time ago, but you are now responsible for giving it back. Because it is not before God yours. And they continue on saying things like, well, one reason why it's important to put this into practice is because, in fact, contrary from the ways in which we want to believe otherwise, there actually is no forgiveness for the sin of stealing without it. And so the great theologian, Church Father Augustine says this, if someone is able to restore the stolen property which was the object of his sin and does not restore it, his repentance is not real, but a pretense. If, however, he is really repenting, the sin cannot be forgiven before he returns what was stolen. And you cannot simply keep it. You say, well, can we just let bygones be bygones? Ezekiel Hopkins says that unjust possession, keeping it, is a continued and prolonged theft. Thomas Boston writes, what you have of him unjustly is still his, and ye are fraudulent and wrong possessors of it, as well as if ye had directly stolen it. A little bit longer, quote John Tillotson, Archbishop of Canterbury in the 17th and 18th century, writes this, Nothing but restitution can stop the progress of sin. For if it be a sin to take that which is another man's from him by fraud or violence, it is the same continued and virtually repeated sin to detain and keep it from him. For how art thou sorry for doing it if thou continuest to do it? If thou wilt go on to do it again and again, how dost thou hate thy sin if thou enjoy the benefit and reap the advantage of it? Again and again and again. And it is for that reason that they say there is no true forgiveness even before God unless we make restitution. Why? Because before God you are continuing to sin in theft again and again and again. This was the prevailing view of Christians from generations past. Restitution was also not a radical practice at all. It was a middle-of-the-road ethical practice in Christian ethics during the 17th through 19th century. The irony, of course, is that it just wasn't actually practiced consistently 
among those who were either actively perpetuating or who were passively standing silently before the mass robbery of African Americans. The theology was there all along. The biblical observation and obligation was always plain before the people. The problem wasn't that people didn't believe in restitution. The problem, of course, was that they didn't believe they had stolen anything. And I wonder, though, if today, the reason why I'm spending so much time in making the case for restitution biblically, because I wonder if our problem today, in fact, is the reverse. We may be able to discern through the annals of history instances in which we can properly identify the sin of theft, and yet we have forgotten through centuries of neglect of this ethic that restitution is a requirement from God. Biblical reparations, therefore, is simply this, that we're called to repair what was ripped. We're called to return what was ripped off. And we're led then to the conclusion that the truth and the grace of the gospel compels us to seek ways to return to the descendants of slavery and Jim Crow discrimination, what was ripped off by the mass multi-generational theft and robbery of racism. So what could it mean out of love and joy in the gospel to restore to our African-American brothers and sisters and to their communities, to restore to them stolen wealth? to restore to them, to return stolen dignity, to repair and restore stolen family, relationship, stolen education, to return stolen truth and narrative and reputation. This is the ministry of repair. And let me be perfectly clear at this point that there's much, much more to be said. And so you need to come back next week because I know the case has not been fully made. And some of you are tracking and you recognize that there's a sense in which these passages focus on an individual's responsibility to make restitution. What we also need to examine is what a corporate body's responsibility looks like. Or what's our unique responsibility as Christians? Or what practically can this reparative work look like concretely? Come back next week. There's much more we need to learn. But I would say one of the hardest challenges is not just knowing, well, what does this look like in detail? Or what are the biblical ethics of corporate responsibility, these hard-to-sort-through sorts of issues, I actually think one of the hardest challenges isn't figuring out all the complexities of the matter, ethically, philosophically, but rather one of the hardest things is that we are simply personally uncomfortable with the idea of reparations because we don't yet know that this basic principle of returning what we took is supposed to be part of everyday life. Like, we don't even feel comfortable applying it to these bigger social issues because we don't know how normal it's supposed to be for you and me. 
Restitution is not just a social repair principle, it's an all-of-life principle. I mean, friends, just for a second, consider with me, when you hurt someone, you need to say sorry. But the Bible says you also always need to accompany that with the question, how can I make it better? When you take credit for a coworker's work, ripping it off, or you plagiarize someone's ideas, when you withhold pay from an employee consciously, or when you squeeze a worker in your backyard or in your home, the Bible says you need to give it back. One interesting thing about going back to the older folks that thought and taught a lot about restitution is how much they paid attention to the example of the sin of slander, which is the theft of a good name the theft of someone's reputation, a kind of theft that is just rampant today, especially in the social media age that we are presently in, where you can just say all kinds of lies and untruth by email, on Twitter, or otherwise, and just walk away. Maybe you're brought to the point of saying sorry, but the Bible tells us you're obligated to do even more than that. Have you ever heard of social media restitution? Have you ever heard of email restitution? Have you ever heard of different forms of the restitution for slander that in principle seems absolutely to be something we are called to abide by in the name of Jesus? John Tillotson, again, Archbishop of Canterbury from two centuries ago, three centuries ago, wrote this, If thou hast defrauded and injured any man in his good name... Thou art obligated to make him a compensation. Okay, by giving money, well, not necessarily. By acknowledgement of thy sin, by a studious vindication of him, and by doing him honor and repairing his credit in all fitting ways. In other words, if you took away his reputation, it's on you to build it back up. If you stole their name by saying, five bad things about them. You're obligated at least to bring back, in addition to correcting those falsehoods, five good things or more. And I want to be careful. I'm using that as an example that this isn't simply about numerical symmetry, uh, a transactional thing where we're just trying to pay our dues. It's not that at all. This is an act of love. But just to make the point again, Richard Baxter writes this, how much satisfaction be made, how must satisfaction be made for slanders and lies, for the defaming of others? Here's how, by confessing the sin and, I love this, unsaying what was said. Not only as openly as it was spoken, Okay, so you do this publicly and you say privately a couple? No. As broadly as your sin was committed, but as far as it is since carried on by others. Okay, so not only whoever heard it, but whoever heard it and then heard it. Now you're responsible for that as well. And as far as the reparation of your neighbor's good name requireth, if you are able. I mean, I actually want to say pastorally and as a congregation, 
One of the best things I, I think we can do to get our minds around this idea of racial reparation, which is just massive and huge and wrought with all kinds of complexities and responses, one of the best things we can do to get there to a shared understanding of our calling is by practicing slander restitution, of paying attention to the ways that your words create deficits and debts, the ways in which you are called not simply to say sorry, but actually to unsay what was said. And beyond slander, other forms of taking, sinful taking from another person. Let the Holy Spirit search your heart. It's a difficult work because we simply live in an age of finders, keepers, and we live in an age that says, I said, I'm sorry, what more do you want from me? And until we normalize the practice of restitution in our homes, in our church community, in our relationships, we would never see the gospel sanity of restitution for those who've been racially robbed. The starting point for Zacchaeus, of course, is the same starting point for us, the kindness of Jesus. Jesus stops, he looks, he loves, he welcomes, he embraces. It's that that pops open Zacchaeus' heart. And so we're reminded that even this calling to restitution is not something that can be enacted simply by force of will or, or simply as an act of punishment or by bludgeoning the conscience of people. I mean, some of us need to realize that if you want to promote and encourage this way of, of thinking, the way to do it is not by yelling at people. That does not change the human heart, and it will not advance the cause. Will you dare to walk the way of Jesus? And for others of you who are saying, well, that's what I mean, be nice to me, do you also recognize the kindness of Jesus is precisely what moves Zacchaeus to want to just open up his life and give everything back. So generous was the kindness of Jesus. So much had Jesus given everything to Zacchaeus and he saw it and knew it. Zacchaeus said, how could I not just open my, my life, my heart, my pocketbook, my very soul to those whom I have wronged and even more? Jesus, dear friends, is the perfect ram that atones for all of our sins. Just to put a fine point on it, our restitution, reparations, does not atone for any sins. Only Jesus can do that. But our restitution is an act of love for our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters. And it was this forgiveness, in fact, that unleashed Zacchaeus' radical commitment to heal even in unimaginably costly ways. Did you notice Zacchaeus' life after this point would never be the same? This was not a convenient pledge that he made with his spare change. He gave away, or committed to at least, half of his possessions to the poor and anything that he had taken wrongly. 60%, 70%, 80% of his entire net worth, gone. No, not gone, given. Loved into the lives of other people. 
And Zacchaeus' life would never be the same because he now had Jesus. Zacchaeus' life would never be the same, but I doubt for a second he would ever say that he had lost a thing. Because that's what happens when the gospel of grace pierces your heart and turns your life right side up. That was the case in Korea over a century ago. As we hear stories from missionaries like William Blair, who was a missionary in 19th and 20th century Koreas, he explains what happened in what, was now, what is now called the Great Revival of 1907 in Pyongyang. People came to hear the story of Jesus in an extraordinary sort of way. In addition to encountering the love of Jesus, this revival was marked by a widespread repentance of all kinds of sin. It was one of the marquee hallmarks. In fact, it always is when revival hits a land that people start to unpack their lives. Repentance. This is what missionary William Blair wrote about that time. This is what happened when love showed up. This is what happened when Jesus stood still before their sycamore tree. We had our hearts. He's talking about the missionaries torn again and again during those days by the return of little articles and money that had been stolen from us during the years, by the Korean Christians that had finally encountered Christ. It hurt so to see them grieve. All through the city, men were going house to house, confessing to individuals they had injured, returning stolen property and money, not only to Christians, but to heathen as well, till the whole city was stirred. A Chinese merchant was astonished to have a Christian walk in and pay him a large sum of money that he had obtained unjustly years before. What a a beautiful picture of life, of repentance, of new community. The grace of God producing gospel repair. William Blair observed also this, repentance was by no means confined to confession and tears. Peace waited upon reparation, wherever reparation was possible. Will we dare dream in our nation, but also in this very church, in our neighborhood and for our city, dare to dream for something similar? Of course, a a movement of biblical restitution of reparations would require something like spiritual revival. Make no mistake about it. Because even for our nation and for our black brothers and sisters' sake, peace waits upon reparation. Peace seeks healing. I know you long for racial peace. Will we hear the call to repair? Let's pray. Jesus, only you can talk to us like this. Only you can do this. Only you can help us to know wisely, yes, but also with a will to obey, to give lavishly. We, 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 just, we just want to follow you. We do, and so come.
Please come. Send your spirit. Show us what to do. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing.